the feeling that you get when you listen to music, when you're dancing, when you're in a room with people, or even when you're in your own room, just with your headphones on, that's unique. And so I, I always wanted to explore how that worked. Welcome to Midlife Mixtape, the podcast. I'm Nancy Davis Coe, and we're here to talk about the years between being hip and breaking one. Where do I belong? Tell me why I'm here and what's taking this long. When can I move on? Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com forward slash midlife mixtape. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash midlife mixtape for your free audiobook. Hi there, you guys, and welcome to the Midlife Mixtape Podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. If I sound a little froggy, it's because I'm taping this the morning after the big 80s dance party at the Cat Club in San Francisco last night, where I was the guest DJ, and we raised money for Bay Area food banks. Uh, It was a super fun night, you guys. I'm tired. We had a great turnout, uh, played a lot of Bowie, played a lot of Iggy Pop, ended up playing a lot of Smiths because that seemed to be what the vibe was last night, too. So I will post the playlist on the Midlife Mixtape Facebook page this week. Would you guys want me to do that as a Spotify playlist? I was thinking that might be interesting. So let me know if you're into that and um, if it's of any interest, and I'll get it done right after I've taken a restorative nap. Is is 11 a.m. too early? for a nap because I'm going down. But let's get to the business at hand. Today, I'll be interviewing someone who I've admired from across the Twitterverse and radio waves for ages, Ann Powers. Ann is NPR's music critic and correspondent and one of the nation's leading music writers. She began her career at San Francisco Weekly and has held positions at the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Village Voice, Blender, and the Experience Music Project. Anne's also written a few books, including Weird Like Us, My Bohemian America, Tori Amos, Piece by Piece, which she co-wrote with Tori, and Rock She Wrote, Women Write About Rock, Rap, and Pop, co-edited with Evelyn McDonald. She was also the editor of Best Music Writing 2010. Anne's latest book is Good Booty, Love and Sex, Black and White, Body and Soul in American Music. And I get to give a copy of the book to a lucky listener. You're going to want to read it after you hear us talk about it. So stay tuned all the way to the end of the episode for details of how to enter. But for now, here's Anne. So I'm here today with NPR music critic Anne Powers. Anne, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Nancy. It's a real pleasure. Oh, I'm so excited to talk with you. I finished your book last night. I have a million questions, which we won't be able to get to because we only have half an hour. But um, oh, let's do a speed round. <laughs> yeah, speed round. Okay. Well, I did tell your publicist sent me a copy of the book to look at, and I wrote her back and said, okay, I'm on page 20, and I've dog-eared 18 pages. So <laughs> there was so much good stuff to go back and savor. So we'll, we're going to get to that. But the first thing we always do on the Midlife Mixtape podcast is talk about the first concert you ever went to see. And you know, for someone who grew up to be one of the country's most revered music writers, I'm thinking Ann Powers' first concert was either really, really good or really awful. So which was it? (laughs) Well, I guess it was sort of both at once, Nancy, because my first concert was the Beach Boys. It was 1977. 
So I was born in 64. So I'm a boom. I'm a boomer Gen X cusp. You're person, a cusper. You know? I'm right. Yeah. I'm a cusper. Yeah. I like him to think of myself as a me generation. <laughs> that's what I, that's what I am. Generation of one. <laughs> exactly. So my mm-hmm. first concert was the Beach Boys at Seattle Center Coliseum, which I went to somewhat randomly. My friend Julie McDonald's older sister had extra tickets for some weird reason. And um, I don't know, you know, I thought, okay, the Beach Boys, what the heck, you know, I mean, right. I was like 13 years old, I didn't know. And, um, and I went and it was, it was momentous, because it was not only my first concert, but I had my, <laughs> I had my first puff of weed, and also my first slow dance at that concert with some <laughs> guy in the audience and uh there was and, a lot going on at that concert <laughs> yeah but the funny thing is the beach boys in the 70s you know brian wilson didn't tour that much he was going through uh, a lot of mental health issues at the time but he was on that tour so accidentally i saw a kind of important historical tour with the beach boys so i guess even at that time accidentally i was where the action was at <laughs> that's fantastic did you come out of that thinking that music is it for me? Or was it more of a a slow segue? You know, that Beach Boys concert was kind of accidental. The first concert that I remember myself choosing to, to, you know, buy tickets to that was a big concert was The Cars. And Nick Gilder, remember him? He did Hot Child in the City. Oh, yeah, sure. (laughs) At Heckhead Pavilion, which was the uh, basketball pavilion, I guess, at University of Washington. And um, that one I remember because some guy asked me to go take acid with him in his van, but I didn't go. But but good, it good choice very exciting. there. Applaud <laughs> you your level head. I think that that music was seemed like a gateway to adventure for sure. But by that time I was into new wave and punk music, and um, that was '79, so uh, I was a little older. And I was very into the local music scene. I have. Uh, my beloved cousin, Greg Powers, was in a punk band called Fred, named after Mr. Rogers, actually. He was the trombone player in this punk band, strangely enough. Um, not many punk bands had trombone players, but this one did. The self-respecting uh, ones did. <laughs> and so I got into the local punk scene in Seattle. This is way before grunge. So I was going to a lot of really tiny shows, like in people's houses or Elks Club or Oddfellows Hall and stuff like that. And that was kind of my my window in. From the beginning, it was it was all about community and being uh, in a local scene. And I also hung out a lot in record stores, something that I think mm-hmm. Gen, X, Gen Xers uh, love and probably miss a lot. It was It was a hallmark of our generation of music lovers to to hang out in record stores, which of course millennials don't do, but uh, we did. And and Tower Records was was my kind of home base. And I learned so much just hanging around at Tower and going through the bins and buying, you know, whatever cost three dollars or whatever. Right. So that was those were my roots. It's a perfect segue to your book. So Anne's uh, book comes out August 15th. It's called Good Booty, Love and Sex, Black and White, Body and Soul in American Music. And I finished it last night and it's a fascinating lens into basically everything that's interesting that's ever happened. That's how I think about it. It's, I mean, it really, it it pulls together history, race, gender relations, and of course, sex. And it's definitely the only book I've ever read that starts with a Methodist screed written in 1819 and ends 349 
pages later with Beyonce, and it does so in a way that you're like, well, obviously, that led to that. I mean, it, the scope of this book is enormous. And I it's throughout, I just kept thinking, how does she pull all this? How did you have so much context? So that I guess my first question to you is, what was the big question you were trying to answer when you set out to write this book? Great way of thinking about it. I mean, the the big question is the question I've asked throughout my career, which is, how does popular music work through our bodies? You know, how, how does it express the deep emotions and the depth of feeling, the depth of, of intelligence in our bodies, you know? So when I talk about sex, I'm not just talking about, you know, the sex act. And, I, and it's not, you know, just a lighthearted romp through uh, stories of burlesque dancers and strippers and porno actors and all of that that connects with with popular music, although they're all in this book. As they're you know. in there. Right. <laughs> but it's really about a definition of the erotic that comes to me from the great feminist writer, Audre Lorde, uh, who talks about the erotic as a source of pride and dignity and power, you know, and also from an essential idea that I get from Martin Luther King Jr., which is this idea of somebodyness, of the the core of yourself that can't be compromise no matter what you face, no matter what kind of oppression you face or marginalization you face. And sexuality is kind of the language through which we experience that core and eroticism. And and so, yes, it connects to actual sex and sexual relations and the ways we talk about sex through culture. But it also is really just about that dignity and pride and joy in the body. And that's why the book is about dance as much as music, why it's about the physical act of making music as we experience it or of being in audiences. And, and that's why the people in the audience are in some ways as important as any of the stars who are in, in the book. Right. Yeah, I think that point comes through so clearly in the beginning of the book when you're talking about New Orleans and the role yeah. that some of the the what's now called Congo Square, but you know the way that the uh, slaves came together there and could express themselves in ways through dance that was a little bit coded to the audience that was a place where they could have that somebodyness and you know through the through the music experience power that they were denied in all other facets of their lives. I thought that that made the connection so so clear. Well, thank you, Nancy. That is that brings up the other essential uh, kind of argument in the book, which is that the essence of American music, and in in my mind, the American spirit, is hybridity. You know, it is the mix, and and New Orleans is the place to talk about that. It's the place to launch from because from the very beginning, before we were a nation. New Orleans was a city that it was an ultimately multicultural city. You know, it was the most multicultural city in the U.S. It, it is a Caribbean city. It is an African city. It is a Latin city, as well as a, a white city where, you know, people, you're white Europeans settled. And all of those influences together make up the basis of American music. And you also, you bring up Congo Square, one of the great myths of American culture, but, but a reality as well. And, and that connects with the fact that the African-American culture and the African diaspora is the center of American music. And through, only through understanding the oppression of slavery can we understand the joy and power 
and liberation of that culture and the resilience of it. And I, those are all things I try to talk about in this book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Obviously as a white person, you know, I had to be, I would, I was very aware of my own subjectivity and that I'm approaching stories that, you know, belong to other people. Uh, So, so I hope that I, I approach them with, with the respect and, and honor them as much as possible. And that's why I did that archival research, you know, and try to let, those voices as much as we can hear them because there's so little record, uh, African uh, enslaved people, there's so little record of their actual words. But I really tried to get at the origins of, of this stuff. There was a gospel singer. I know Darlene, I can't think of her name, but oh, Darlene Love. Dorothy Love, Love Coates. Dorothy That's Love it. Coates. That's much later. And then also Florence Mills, who's an early 20th century Broadway performer. Uh, yeah, I oh my goodness, I love those secret stories or those lost stories. The the critic Griel Marcus, who's a huge influence on me, called them lipstick traces. You know these these stories that then you find kind of a resonance later on in mm-hmm. in the culture. And I feel like those women's stories are that. You know, we we hear their influence even though we don't even know who they are. <laughs> I'm wondering if you think that there's anything special about the way that Gen X might have used music as a channel for understanding and exploring race and sexuality. And I'm thinking of the imagery of the MTV era. You and I are, you know, within a couple of years of each other. And I don't know if you spent as much time as I did lying on my stomach in front of the TV after school doing my homework while I watched MTV, (laughs) you know. So we were seeing the images through MTV and, and, and True Confessions, Hungry Like the Wolf. I was like, wow, body, I've never had a feeling like that before. I'm 13 and I don't know what that is. I mean, well, do you feel like for for our for Generation X that there is that that visual feedback that came through growing up alongside MTV? You know, in the eighties, when MTV came to power, <laughs> when MTV came to dominate popular music, some of the greatest icons of the contemporary era were emerging. Right, so mm-hmm. obviously Madonna. I write extensively about Madonna in this book. And Prince, you know, is another one. Michael Jackson as well. But these artists um, used the visual. They they gave us a language of eroticism through the visual as well as through their musical work uh, that is very profound and I think that did guide us. I, I do think, as I write about in Good Booty, that our generation had a unique struggle and uh, tragedy to confront, which of course uh, was the AIDS is the AIDS epidemic. AIDS really left such a huge mark on our generation and on the culture in general. And one thing that the kind of fantasy world of MTV gave us, and the fantasy world constructed by artists like Madonna, was a way to uh, think about sexuality, to experience sexuality in a fantasy realm. When sometimes it felt very scary you know, to actually go out there and experiment. And I think that's one reason why MTV dominated the 80s and into the 90s. And that's also why I think, I think the AIDS epidemic is also why in the 90s, a kind of new puritanism enters in. And I talk about this when I talk about grunge and 90s rock and also 90s hip hop, that there was a turning away from sensuality. There was a Mm -hmm. turning away from kind of a utopian vision of sex toward uh, a questioning of that. And that sounds negative. I mean, it doesn't sound like that much fun, right? <laughs> you know, you think about Nirvana and some of the messages that Kurt Cobain had about sex. But then 
at the same time, that critique was very important. And you had things like Riot Girl and Feminist Punk that exposed the sexism within rock and roll. You know, that, right. that in earlier eras, the 60s and the 70s, and even the 50s, you know, people didn't question that rock dudes, you know, exploited young women. They, that was just part of the game. And here in the 90s, partly because of, I think, HIV AIDS, a different kind of awareness happened and there was space for a feminist critique, which is still happening today and and so necessary even today. Right. So when you were writing this, what what was the most surprising thing that you found as you were? And actually, how long did it take you to write? Because the the research was extensive. (laughs) Yeah. Well, in some ways, my husband, Eric Weisbart, who is also a longtime music critic and now a music historian, uh, an academic, he says, this is sort of the culmination of my whole career, which, which, you know, I mean, I don't know, I don't want my career to be over. So I don't know if I want to call it a culmination. (laughs) I totally see what he's saying. Because nobody younger than you could have written this book. That's what I, (laughs) because you have to have absorbed a certain amount of knowledge to get to a point where you can make these, these complex connections. That's what I think. Well, you know, it's funny. My my daughter, who's 13, is constantly making fun of the book's uh, first sentence, which is, I think I was around nine years old when I realized music is sexy. My daughter <laughs> finds that hilarious and a bit, you know, mortifying. <laughs> but, but in fact, I think ever since I was nine years old, ever since I was a kid, I wondered about that. I wondered about how this particular medium allowed me, allowed us, all my friends, my generation, to channel feelings and to express feelings that that otherwise I didn't see being expressed. You know, I mean, yes, certainly in the movies there there is sex, in books there is sex. But that that embodiment of it, you know, the feeling that you get when you listen to music, when you're dancing, when you're in a room with people, or even when you're in your own room just with your headphones on, that's unique. And so I, I always wanted to explore how that worked. And it took me many years to kind of see the historical context uh, of it, you know. And certainly writing this book at the time I've written it made me think a lot about how race is at the center of the story. Since mm-hmm. we're at, at such an important moment in our history where uh, that's being acknowledged, you know, where the complexity of America's attitudes toward race we are all talking about that now. So that, you know, is such a central part of the story as well. But yeah, I mean, just pure research. I think I started the project in 2011. It took me a while. I went to a lot of archives. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, I have to just bookend this by saying that um, this summer, my husband and daughter went to the East Coast to look at some schools. My other daughter is working at a summer camp. So I had this very unusual five-day period of being home alone in my house. And it was like the best vacation. And the peak moment of it was the day I took your book and went and sat at a beer garden down by the water in Alameda. And I sat there with a, it was, I was like, I think I'm about to be raptured. I'm so happy (laughs) in this moment. So so thank you. It was the highlight of summer 2017. That, the pretzel, come on. (laughs) I wonder what you were soundtracking. What music were you listening (laughs) Oh, I can't listen. I can't listen to anything when I, I can't listen to when I do anything because I get so distracted by lyrics. Yeah, I hear you. I'm the same way. I, 
I definitely, uh, if I listen to music while I'm working, it's jazz, you know, or yeah. sometimes like a Brian Eno kind of ambient record I'll put on. But I'm jealous of people who can listen to music when they work because I'd love to physically, I'd love to have more time in my day to listen to music, but I just can't do it. I it's For yeah. me, it's driving and, and I hike a lot and I listen to music when I hike. Oh, me too. I love to yeah. do that. Although I have to say in the podcast era, I've become addicted to a lot of podcasts. So and I'm out there listening to, you know, different narratives rather than music, which cuts down on my music listening a little bit, which isn't great. But <laughs> yeah, but we love podcasts. Podcasts are awesome. So <laughs> I do. I, I, wa- I wonder sometimes if I've lost the ability to be alone with my own thoughts. That's the thing that worries me. Yes, I feel you on that. And that's important. That's what the shower is for. (laughs) (laughs) Not in drought-stricken California. We got to get in and out. So (laughs) (laughs) let's switch gears a little bit. You, you know, you've been in the business for, you tell me how many years, but it's, you know, (laughs) a couple decades. We'll just leave it at that. Do you approach the job of being a music critic differently at midlife than you did at a younger age? In some ways, I do. I mean, some of it has to do with my places of employment over the years have mm-hmm. changed, you know. Um, in some ways, I really don't. Like, I'm still that person who likes to go to a show and likes to get up front and, you know, really get into the music and and read the read the experience of a live show and, and kind of figure out. I, live music is my favorite. I, you know, recordings are great and I treasure them, but but there's nothing like being in a room where people are making music. And I really, I go out now, I live in Nashville uh, now and I'm out in the clubs, you know, three or four nights a week, even still. It's nice in Nashville because the, the country music industry likes to go to bed early. So you get a lot of early shows, (laughs) which is pretty awesome. I wish that would spread to the rock industry. Yeah, no, I agree. I think there should be like that, that uh, live music happy hour all over the country. It's funny, yeah. the West Coast is the worst. I mean, Seattle, where I grew up, the shows still sometimes go till two in the morning. And I think, honestly, I think it's just because the clubs want to sell more drinks, you know. Right. But um, hey, people in Nashville like to drink during the day. So they'll listen to music. <laughs> it's all good. Cheers, Nashville. Maybe I'll <laughs> move there. But but anyway, so I, I, I still like to get out there and hear new music live and experience it that way. I think that that obviously I have accrued a lot more knowledge. So my ability to contextualize has has changed. And probably, you know, my ears are a little bit worn out just physically. So I'm not as into going to really loud shows. And I I always wear earplugs, but I'm not as much up there headbanging as I used to be. I used to love a good heavy metal show, but I leave that to my kid now. She's a real metalhead. So she goes goes to see the metal shows. Carrying the family standard (laughs) forward. It's true. She likes, she's in a punk band and I took her to Warp Tour for the first time this year. She went to see one of her favorite bands play a set and she came back and she said, mom, I I was in the mosh pit and I got hit in the face two times. She was so proud of that. (laughs) I was like, ah, memories. (laughs) Yeah. It's my, uh, my oldest daughter loves going to shows with me and um, she tells me she went to some show in her college town and she said, these girls tried to press up on me and I held my ground and I threw my elbows and no one. And I'm like, I could not be more proud of you than I am right now. It's funny, like what the 
what the sentimental things are for us is certainly different than it was for our parents, right? I don't think yeah. my mom got a, a tear in her eye when she heard me listening to the Ramones, you know, the way that... <laughs> Well, we're different. Rock and so, roll parents. Exactly. And you have just come out with a, an amazing project that I posted to the Midlife Mixtape Facebook page. It's called Turning the Tables. And yeah. you, together with other female music experts, came up with a list of 150 best rock albums by women. Is it best rock albums or best albums? Well, best albums of best what albums. we're calling the classic album era, which is, we dated from 1964 to the present um, originally it was going to be 1967. It was supposed to coincide with the release of Sgt. Pepper. Cause the idea is to say, you know, almost every list of great albums is so dominated by men and our kind of paradigms of what a great album is are defined by the Beatles and Bob Dylan and Jimi Hendrix. And Hey, I love all those artists. I think, you know, those are touchstones for me as well. But I, I wanted to ask the question, what happens if we put Aretha Franklin at the center or we put Nina Simone at the center or Joni Mitchell, who, of course, had our number one album in blue. And so I organized a bunch, uh, almost 50 women across NPR uh, who work, you know, in different aspects of NPR. And we made this list. And, you know, the great thing about the list is that people have been responding, arguing with it, getting frustrated with it, and making their own lists. So now right. there's all these lists of 150 great African music records or 150 great metal records by women or jazz records or classical records. And that's what's wonderful. It's just proliferating, and that's super exciting. Also super exciting that Super Duper Fly Missy Elliott made number five. <laughs> She's amazing. I do a hip hop class. And when when our teacher sees that we're all flagging, he just throws some Missy on there. And everybody's like, all right, I got another two hours in me. I'm good. I'm fine. (laughs) Well, that's a great thing, you know, and I think it's because we had this age range among our voters, ranging from uh, late, late 60s to early 20s, right? And so even the top 10, Although it's dominated by records that were made in the 70s and the 90s, since those were sort of glory days, high points for women in music, when basically when the music industry was really supporting women, the range of albums is very is very diverse chronologically. And, and that makes me really happy. Joni Mitchell next to Lauryn Hill, next to Nina Simone, next to Missy Elliott, next to not too far down the list, PJ Harvey. So that I hope people get a sense of the of the continuum of women in music from this list. Right. Just as in my book, I hope people get the sense of a continuum of, um, as you said, the I talk about how the dances, as far as we know, what we know about the early uh, dances that enslaved people were doing, they didn't look that different from what <laughs> Beyonce does in her videos. You know, maybe Beyonce's taken it to a different place or a different level of explicitness or or sexual forthrightness, but. It's always in the hips, you know, music moves through our hips. (laughs) And along with turning the tables, the list, which of course I'll uh, post together on the show notes for this episode, you've got some live events coming up to support it. Yeah, we had a great, huge concert at Lincoln Center. So Lincoln Center uh, is our partner on this series. And my good friend, Jill Sternheimer, who's another incredible, powerful woman in the music industry and the culture world who is the director of programs at Lincoln Center, 
she and I came up with this idea and we're doing a series of events. So we had this great concert where Ricky Lee Jones played Pirates in its entirety, one of my favorite albums from right around when I was graduating from high school. And then uh, women artists paid tribute to the women who are on the list. So, and we're going to have two more events uh, at Lincoln Center in their smaller space, the atrium. We're still coming up with the themes, but just kind of discussing the list and, and reflecting upon the list. And then in the spring, we'll have an American Songbook um, event. We're still figuring out what those events are going to be, but they'll all reflect the list. Great. And one last question for you. What one piece of advice do you have for people younger than you, or do you wish that you could go back and tell yourself? Wear earplugs. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I mean, and- I'm serious. It's like, this is the biggest thing. I can't even hardly get my kid to do it, but, but music is loud. Get yourself some protective earplugs. You can get these really great ones that have filters, so the music sounds the same. Just you're not getting damaged by it. So go get yourself a pair of custom earplugs and rock out and never stop rocking out. All right, Ann Powers and her new book, Good Booty, Love and Sex, Black and White, Body and Soul in American Music is coming out August 15th. I'm going to be giving away a copy on the blog, so check out the show notes for the rules. And Ann, thank you so much. Uh, You'll be doing some bookstore touring, right, to do some readings around this? I'll be in on the West Coast, Seattle, San Francisco, and LA, I think like second week in September. I'm still firming up the dates, but look for me. Look for me there. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much, Nancy. I really appreciate it. So after talking to Anne and making my Hungry Like the Wolf true confession, I was curious to hear what you guys thought. So I asked over on the Midlife Mixtape Facebook page whether there was a particular video that gave you your first, what my friend Jen likes to call, stirrings. You know what I mean. The first time that thoughts of good booty danced in your head, or more likely, your downtown, Well, you people were stirred up during the MTV era. It was the liveliest discussion we've ever had over on that page. And obviously, Prince got a whole lot of people shook. That's a surprise to no one. Uh, The one that did surprise me a little bit was AHA's Morton Harkett. That little tiny Norwegian guy who sang Take On Me put the oof in oof-da for a lot of you, if you know what I'm saying as did Michael Hutchins and the whole NXS crew. My Weisenheimer friend Brett says he became a man listening to Bastards of Young by The Replacements, but I'm pretty sure he was just Yankee My Chain. There was a long discussion of songs that seemed sexy and cool to us as 17-year-olds, but that now as parents make us want to scream statutory rape, like Don't Stand So Close to Me, Hot for Teacher, Sexy and 17. Yeah, that stuff sounds a lot different when you've got kids those ages living under your roof, right? There was a whole digression about the video for The One Thing by NXS, how we would have died to be at that dinner party when we were 16. But as middle-aged people, all we see is cats walking on food. I mean, that is gross. Get those cats off the table. But the clear winner of the Hello Sexuality contest, based on my non-scientific analysis and my thumb on the scale, Duran Duran. Specifically, Simon Laban on Beaches. There are a lot of 40-something moms walking around who were undone by seeing Simon Laban in a Speedo when they were lip-smackers-wearing middle schoolers. And even my replacements-loving friend Brett admitted that Rio had its charms. We played Rio last night at the Cat Club. It still works for people. What about you? Shaken and stirred by a video? 
let us know which one. You can email me at dj at midlifemixtape.com or find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, always at Midlife Mixtape. Okay, and I promised to tell you how you can enter for a chance to win your own copy of Anne's new book, and here's how it's going to work. You'll go to midlifemixtape.com and click on the podcast link. You'll see Anne's episode right at the top of the list. All you have to do is leave a comment on the post there, and I will choose a winner at random from the commenters. I use random.org to do that, so it's completely objective. And I'll make the pick on Tuesday, August 29th. So that gives you a full two weeks to get over there and leave a comment. You know you want some good booty. Who doesn't? That's all for this week, so join me next time when I talk to decorated veteran, congressional candidate, and certified badass Major Mary Jennings Hagar about her role in helping to end the combat exclusion policy for women, her midlife reinvention as a progressive Democratic candidate in a red state, and of course, what it's like to have Angelina Jolie play you in a movie. I mean, that's something we can all relate to. Have a great week, you guys. Thank you so much for listening. For me, I wanna be Don't wanna be this Don't wanna be that Don't wanna give up I wanna give back I wanna be free by whatever means Whatever you want from me I wanna be, be, be I wanna be I wanna be free